Well, thank you very much for all coming, and particularly since it was actually snowing in the middle of the afternoon when uh, Mark and I wandered down the street. So thank you for coming, and I'd like to thank Linacre College especially for inviting me to come over and to host this event. So it's a great pleasure to come here. In particular, as I've been commenting, somehow Oxford archaeology and myself have had very little to do with each other over the last 20-odd years. Even I worked at Reading for a dozen of them, so great pleasure to come. I also made a decision some years ago, meaning like a couple, that I should stop doing anything on Thera because those who actually have followed my CV probably feel that they've seen enough words with Thera or Santorini in the title. And I actively told people recently when they've invited me to come and give talks that I will talk about something else. Mark, of course, then wrote and said, we'd like a lecture about the volcano of Thera and what this did or didn't do with European civilization. So it was one of those tough ones. Do I say no or do I sort of come because it would be nice to come and do a lecture in Oxford? So you get more on Thera, I'm afraid to say, if you feel at any point you've seen a lecture by me on the topic of Thera. I realize I'm speaking to those who know these things, but I just thought I'd stick a map in to show you roughly where we're talking about. Oxford's in the top bit near where I am, and the square is where we're basically going to be dealing with, and especially with the island of Crete. Now, Crete is famous for the fact that it has these large court-centred buildings, traditionally called palaces, thanks to the work of Sir Arthur Evans of Oxford in Crete. And we have towns and all sorts of other settlements. And typically, it's described as being Europe's first state-level civilization. And by that, we're really referring to those palace-type buildings that we were looking at before, and especially Knossos that you see on screen there. Somewhere just after 2000, these buildings are constructed for the first time. They're then rebuilt and remodeled and reconstructed a number of times. But this appears to be a civilization of a certain special sort, Old Palace Crete. It beetles along for a certain period of time, goes through a series of destructions and phases and changes, but at the time it seems to be one of the most important civilizations in Europe. That's Europe defined in the Eurovision Song Contest, understanding which an island well into the Mediterranean, a long way towards Africa, counts as part of Europe, you understand. So, but a European civilization which has a significant impact then on Greek and classical civilization. And when we look at a palace like Knossos as excavated, we're sort of really imagining these complex structures, two highly fanciful but often published reconstructions up the top, just to give you the idea. It looks a bit like the Westfield Shopping Centre at Shepherd's Bush, if you've been there recently. I just observed this new edifice myself for the first time two days ago. And down the bottom, we have some wall paintings that come that give us some ideas of the people and the sort of reconstructive fantasy romantic painting over on the far-hand side to give you an idea of a palace with people and the painted columns and so on. When are we talking about, and which periods, and what labels and names go with? I just put this one up here to give you a vague idea. It's, of course, very simple. Nobody could lose their way around the Aegean Bronze Age. But we have an early period, which I'm not going to talk about, called Early Minoan. We have a middle period called the Middle Minoan, which I'm basically not going to talk about. And then we have a later period, which is called the Late Minoan, or Late Bronze Age period, that runs in the second part of the second millennium BC stick up some rough dates to give you a vague idea of the sort of time period we're talking about. As you'll discover in the second half of the lecture, the dates are much debated, but nonetheless you'll get a vague idea that we're talking about the middle and later part of the second millennium BC. Now, all over the island of Crete, somewhere in about the middle of the second millennium BC, there was a wave of particularly burnt destructions. And if you read a classic study like Sidanus Page's book, 1970, Santorini Volcano and the Desolation of Minoan Crete, 
It's very dramatic and sort of romantic. He refers to fire destruction sweeping across every site, and he lists through the major sites that he knows that time. They all have these great fire destructions, and it's this huge and enormous thing which has to be explained. And in a 1978 piece that he wrote towards the end of his life, it was one of those statements of, well, there's got to be some overwhelming cause for this great devastation, and if it's not the obvious cause, you know, what can it be, basically? But there was this huge wave of destructions which has been much debated. It's been much more complicated in recent decades. People have started to find problems. They're not all necessarily contemporary. Some sites are destroyed more widely than others. Some only have part buildings. But there is this major destruction phase, which is called the late Minoan 1B destructions, which occur at a number of sites. And I stick some sites up on screen. And in general terms, if we look across Crete before the late Minoan 1B destructions, there are many, many dozens of sites all over the island. And if we look at the island straight after the late Minoan 1B destructions, there are really only a dozen or so sites that have any evidence of occupation. Now, the specialists can put their hand up and say, ah, but haven't you read that paper reanalyzing parts of the Moklos assemblage and so on? So yes, we can add another one or two depending on one's interpretation. But there's quite a big change that takes place at this moment. And the notable feature is the site on screen, Knossos, is not in the list of sites that goes out of action and instead becomes the center of a new sort of super site that starts at this time and appears to be a preeminent site in the southern Aegean from about the time of the late Minoan 1B destructions, probably a bit before and certainly afterwards. So what caused these destructions has been a topic of much discussion for many years. Were they comprehensive, like the Great Fire of London, in which a large part of a sort of site or city got burnt? Or do we more imagine that it could be a situation, as per the Turner painting here, of when the Palace of Westminster burnt down, but in fact the British government wasn't being toppled and we hadn't just been invaded by France, Germany, Spain, or anywhere else. The palace just burnt down and they had to rebuild it quite rapidly. So what sort of destructions are there has been debated, and in particular how significant they were. And one could make one argument that all of Cretan civilization down to these destructions is of one sort in which we have a number of sites around the island, many similarities, many common aspects to the polities, and generally speaking they might be seen as being coherent, but quite possibly all divergent and individual, a sort of peer polity model that's been argued by Renfrew and Cherry some years ago. Afterwards, we definitely have a monopalatial island in which there only seems to be one main key center. We have texts that we can read, linear B texts, which tell us that at least from late Minoan two or just after, we seem to have a coherent entity that controls central and parts of western Crete. So we now have a sort of imperial model versus small sites controlling territories. So is this a major break? One can see late Minoan 1B being a great change in the nature of civilization in this island, which then goes on to be a forerunner for some aspects of our later classical world. So what caused these destructions? Well, destructions are fairly common at archaeological sites in the Aegean. In fact, you could argue it's the reverse. If you don't have a destruction at your archaeological excavation, there's something wrong with what you're doing as an archaeologist. And many people have suggested that Aegean archaeologists are a bit sort of destruction happy in the sense that everything gets explained by destructions. When you go to some famous site like Troy and people start pointing at about the 50th one having started at the top of some thing going down, you start to say, well, hold on a minute, they can't all be destructions. Maybe something else happened. And Earthquakes are often blamed, so Canossos, Middle Minoan three, we sort of say there's been a big earthquake, equals the fallen Pythos jar, as you can see there. Other times people suggest 
soldiers may have happened in warfare. Evans regarded Crete as being a very nice, peace-loving place. It was the sort of antidote to Victorian England and the modern world that he was living in and sort of beginnings of the 20th century. They didn't do nasty things like fight, but there's lots of evidence that they probably were busy fighting each other. So one could imagine warfare. The point is the late Manoa 1B destruction seemed to be a little bit more comprehensive in some ways and a bit more of a turning point. So do you have to have a special explanation? I don't think anybody would have thought we needed a special explanation, apart from the fact there's a very large volcano just over 100 kilometers to the north. And if this hadn't existed, I doubt that Spiridon Marinatos would have written an article in 1939 suggesting that maybe this great volcanic eruption caused the destruction of Minoan Crete. And since then, it's either been accepted as a possibility, and if you read a lot of scientific literature, where experts, scientists, very happily keep on saying this, even though I guess it's now probably 40 years that archaeologists have more or less ruled this out as being a direct cause, but you'll still see this frequently cited. Or, if you accept that position, you still somehow feel you should discuss it, and maybe it's possibly relevant. And in 1997, Jan Driessen and Colin MacDonald, in a well-known book on the topic, reactivated the model by saying, okay, we accept that the volcano maybe didn't actually destroy Crete, but indirectly, this great cataclysmic event did lead to a sort of systems failure and collapse, which did lead to the destructions on Crete. So even now, again, within the last sort of generation, we have this volcano being brought back up. So what is the volcano of Santorini, and how does it tie in? Well, of course, nobody was there, but I did find this nice little graphic produced at University in California, so we can just get a vague idea of what we're looking at. We have one of the larger volcanic eruptions of the last several thousand years occurring in the southern Aegean, somewhere in the middle of the second millennium BC. It used to be said that it was a few times bigger than Krakatau, and maybe not quite as big as Tambora, 1815, largest historical known volcanic eruption. And around about 1990, a fairly um, concerted effort was made by a number of scholars to, in fact, downgrade Santorini. It moved from being sort of this big to sort of more like this big. It became went from special to just impressive. But then recent fieldwork, reported in 2006 and onwards, has, if anything, significantly upscaled the Santorini eruption. And suddenly it's become almost twice as big as we thought it was before. So now it's basically of the scale of Tambora or thereabouts, which means in volcanic qualification terms, it scores as a volcanic explosivity index 7-ish. 7 means very big. And if you go there, you can see lots of happy shots like this of this caldera, not all of which was caused by the Minoan eruption at all. It was already there beforehand, as you saw in the animation a moment ago, but this spectacular volcanic landscape. And all of the stuff on the screen, I can use the pointer, all of this grey-white material that you see up here, this all equals pumice material which has come out of the eruption of the Minoan period. So this is the mid-second millennium BC eruption, which has piled pumice tens of metres high in a number of places on the island. How do we know so much about it? Conveniently, the French came along and started quarrying this in the middle of the 19th century to, for use to build the Suez Canal. So as a result of this, we know quite a lot about the island from quite some time back. So this is a classic example of the stratigraphy that we have, which this is the Minoan land surface here. This is the Plinian fall pumice you have here. And then these are different pyroclastic flows, particularly these are the classic stage two pyroclastic flows that will have flowed across the island in the eruption. This is the first little phase, Minoan surface, Plinian. 
And if you stand back and look at what used to be a river or stream bed, you can see that the landscape was just completely blanketed in ash. And clearly, this is pretty impressive. And it's obvious that people went and saw this and thought, my goodness, this is something quite special. Then it was appreciated, thanks primarily to the work of Fouquet and others who went there in the 1860s as part of a French scientific mission, that archaeology was buried underneath this volcanic deposit. So a little field wall there. And in particular, in the south of the island, a place that we call Akrotiri, even though the modern village is in fact not that close to where it is, the modern village of Akrotiri is sort of off here and the site is down here. We have a city buried by this pumice that was excavated from the late 1960s onwards, first by Marinatos, subsequently by Christos Dumas, which is preserved to several stories high with lots and lots and lots of findings and amazing things, particularly wall paintings. We'll look at a few of later just to throw in some art history so we feel good that we've seen something cultural. This entire city, tens of hectares of it buried, so it's like a Pompeii, and it's often been described as the Pompeii of the Aegean. So here we have an example of one of the buildings that was found in the French quarrying up at the top here. Floyd McCoy and um, Henrik Bruins, as a matter of interest, standing there. Bruins will come to you later. He's the man who's recently reactivated the tsunami hypothesis idea. Floyd McCoy has been one of the more active geological, archaeological specialists on the island and has written extensively on the eruption. And they found these buildings buried under the pumice, which they appreciated to be Bronze Age, even dated to the second millennium BC as early as the 1870s, which wasn't bad going. And they found perhaps the most famous or infamous object ever discovered on the island, the famous white slip bowl, which you see the best drawing of there on the right. This object, for those who specialize on theory, is much a vexed topic. Of course, no one's seen it that's alive. It hasn't been seen since at least before 1922, when it went missing from the French school collection Athens. But it's central to Aegean prehistory. <laughs> and a couple of shots here, just to give you an idea of what the site looks like before the new shelter was built and before it collapsed and before they're rebuilding the new shelter. Christos Dumas on screen. Plan of the town, and you can see here the West House, which is one of the better known buildings to give you an idea of what's preserved. And because fabulous wall paintings were discovered there, which showed a complex city, some of the boats, the miniature fresco here, people started to decide that, well, they'd already started to decide maybe this could be Atlantis. And having seen all this, it particularly comes, and every time I answer the phone and somebody says I'm from the BBC, Horizon, or any other show, you know what the next topic is going to be. We're making a program on Santorini, and we're going to discuss it might be Atlantis. There are two in production now, and I think there are at least three last year which came out. So it is seen as special. And I just put a couple of the wall paintings up here so you can just see the range of material, if you're not familiar with it. So let's return to this volcano, therefore. This is the new volcano that you can see out there, near Kamenai, which is the Black Little Island. It's been growing since Roman times. And particularly these pumice cliffs. So what impact did this eruption have on Europe and especially on Crete? The little island down here. Now what types of things can a volcano do to a place? Well, large volcanic eruptions tend to be associated with earthquakes. So we could go looking for earthquake damage and wonder if that was associated. Large volcanic eruptions produce massive amounts of volcanic ash, which is called tephra, and deposit these over large areas. 
This map drawn here, this is a mid-1990s map, which now you have to increase the numbers based on more recent study, but centimeters of the stuff were dumped in many places, and if you lived even hundreds of kilometers away, for example, out in Rhodes, in the southeast area out here in the southeast Aegean, we're talking 10, 20 plus centimeters of ash being dumped on. If this is put on a flat roof and it rains, you need about 10 to collapse the so-called traditional house under this. So this is the type of material that would have then flattened whole settlements and areas. How much fell on Crete? Well, you'll spot that the little isopack lines seem to be running out when they get to Crete. Modern estimates would suggest that this eastern bit might have got up to five centimetres, one to five centimetres. So enough that you'd all notice. It would be somewhat like the snow last week in, in, in southern England. You would have noticed, it would have been inconvenient, but in principle, people would have survived. I, you may question that, obviously, it's been a shock here. Those of us living in America at that time, anyway, got lots of amusing emails from friends saying, have you seen what's happened in England? It's collapsed. <laughs> you would have had a tidal wave, because it's a volcanic island. The pyroclastic flows would have come straight across the island and entered the sea, and, as the little animation showed, central part of where they now have caldera, some of that has collapsed, and there's nearly 200 metres of Minoan deposit stuff at the bottom of that caldera. So obviously it wasn't there originally, so it's gone plonk. So you most certainly would have had a large tsunami, or tsunamis, I don't even know if you have tsunamis, you would have had plural tsunami wandering across the southern Mediterranean. And some of those at least must have hit the north coast of Crete. And finally... You could have warfare, not in the context of just an army showing up, but if somewhere had been hit by a tsunami or an earthquake or the ashfall had wiped out the summer crops so there was no food left and things weren't looking so good, you could imagine rival dynast from somewhere else thinking, now is the moment to attack. I've always planned to own Knossos. Now is the moment to move in. So one could imagine the idea that all of these volcanic things created the circumstances for other ambitious human activities to occur, and warfare to ensue. Now, in the modern world, we know about other things that volcanoes do. So if you study, for example, northern hemisphere temperatures over the last 600 years, which Keith Briffer and colleagues at UEA did a few years ago, and you compare the coldest years based on either instrumental data, far right-hand side, or reconstructed estimates based primarily on tree ring data, my side of the screen, against the known historically attested large volcanoes, the arrows going upwards, versus the temperatures, you'll spot there's a very strong correlation. So, for example, years around 1815, 1816, very cold, equals Tambura. Years around 1600, 1601, very large Central American volcano, very cold. So you could imagine some significant climate effect from a very large volcanic eruption. Maybe about 0.35 to 0.4 degrees Celsius on average northern hemisphere temperature change on the current model size of the Thera eruption. That doesn't sound very much. I mean, 0.4 degrees. I mean, heavens, it'll be one degree different tomorrow than it was today or more. That's an average temperature change. And the thing to always bear in mind is you only need about an average temperature change of one degree, and this brings malaria and all sorts of unfriendly things way north into places like Britain where they're not meant to be and vice versa. So almost half a degree temperature change on average is quite significant. So that could make a marginal environment too marginal to be viable, or the other way around. And if you look at tree ring evidence, people have said, well, perhaps this type of event, unusual changes in temperature, might create growth anomalies. And for, what now, nearly 30 years, people have been arguing over things like the 
frost-damaged ring that the pencil is pointing to from a bristlecone pine from southwest USA. Back in 1976, a person called Val LaMarche first mentioned in National Geographic in an interview that he had this extraordinary frost-damaged ring coming from the year 1626, which turned out to be 1627 because he had a zero in his computer program for the difference between AD and BC. And by 1984, it was published formally in Nature and became one of these artifacts that people have referred to in the field ever since, the frost ring. The pencil is pointing at the frost ring. What this means is that at the time the tree was growing, which for a bristlecone pine at high altitude, and high altitude means nearly 4,000 meters for a bristlecone pine, they have a growing season of about six to eight weeks. That means during that six to eight weeks, it then snowed or there was an ice storm or it pretended it was winter like the rest of the year. And as seen in the top left-hand side, the growing rings were damaged by frost. And that creates a lighter colored piece of timber and it usually splits across there. And you can see how the wood, if you go to the left where the pencil is, out this direction, you can see how it's actually splitting on the frost ring or frost damaged ring. And there's quite a strong correlation if you look over a couple of thousand years. Frost damage events in these trees that occur widely correlate in a number of times, about 90% of the time, with major volcanic eruptions. And Mike Bailey, working in Belfast, he pointed out that Irish oaks and other oaks in England and Germany showed an unusual low growth event occurring at almost the same time in the 1620s. So 1984, 1988, when he published this, 1990, a whole group of people started to say, well, maybe tree ring evidence shows something unusual happening, and it was suggested that maybe this was the theory of volcanic eruption. But then the skeptics got to work and said, basically, you've got no idea what caused this at all, which is completely true. None of these people had any positive proof that this had anything to do with a volcano. For all we know, it was just an unlucky set of circumstances. An El Nino event happened, occurred, explained one, and who knows what happened in the north of Ireland. You know, there could have just been a bad Atlantic flood or something. Some years later, working on the Aegean Dendrochronology Project, where we have a long floating chronology of 1,503 years secure, about two and a half insecure, in the Bronze Age period, it was observed, and had been for some time, that it has an extraordinary growth anomaly right here. Now, in some periods of the Aegean Dendrochronology, we don't actually have that many trees, because this is being collected from archaeological sites, other places, and often fairly rare timbers. So if you're out here in the early part of the sorry, late part of the third millennium, we've basically got, you know, a couple of samples. So in dendro terms, this is very weak. Just in here, we've only got nine samples in one year. Marginal. They're nine quite good samples, but, you know, you could, you could question it. But this extraordinary growth anomaly is occurring in a year where we've got 61 trees. So in dendro terms, this is a very strong event. It's extraordinary that it seems to be showing up in literally every one. It really is. It's all but two trees that we have are picking up this event and it's way above any other event that you can see. So what is this? Just so you can see the nature of this event, the arrows are pointing to these incredibly wide rings. You can see the normal rings, normal rings after, this dramatic event. That's a nice sample. The reason the GN Dendrochronology Project struggles to make the progress that you would make if you were just doing the last 200 years on Oak and Southern England is this is an example of a more typical sample that we receive from the field, and one could even say this is one of our better samples that we receive from the field. Usually they're highly fragmentary and require weeks of work to actually successfully measure two or more radii across them to get the data that we use. And working especially with a um, PhD student originally and now a postdoc at Cornell, Charlotte Pearson, who vanished out of the top left corner of the screen, we started a project some years ago to consider the chemistry 
of these tree rings to see whether maybe we could actually tie these trees to a volcanic cause. We looked, first of all, for recent trees, wondering could we find the Tambura eruption of 1815. If we can't find that, why on earth are we going to find Santorini and vice versa? What's the point of trying to find Santorini if we can't prove that we can find something recent that everybody agrees existed? So we analyzed pine, for example, from Turkey. And lo and behold, just at the time of the Tambura eruption, we can find some quite distinct chemical anomalies starting to show up. That was a tree from Turkey. Tried again with a tree from Cyprus. It's not quite as distinct, but the same phenomenon is occurring, which we're getting a marked anomaly cropping up at this specific time. So if we look, for example, at the Porsuk wood, we get the same. We get some quite sharp anomalies starting to show up at ring 854, which is the magic number where these big rings occur. And most particularly interesting of all, we have the one and only major reading for hafnium occurring in this ring. Hafnium is one of those interesting sort of rare elements that you don't bump into in the average supermarket shelf. But it's very difficult to explain how it would be in the environment, and particularly in a tree, if it isn't coming from a large volcanic eruption. So this starts to make it possible that some of these tree ring anomalies could be specifically tied to a volcanic eruption. What else could you use to try and figure out about volcanoes? Well, recent work has moved to start looking at speleothems from caves especially. And as has been often said at conferences the last two years, the last couple of decades were the decades of the tree in most paleoclimate research. The next decade or so apparently is going to be the speleothem, is going to be the thing of choice. And if you look at speleothems, such as this one here from Italy, you'll spot that they are able to pick up chemically what appear to be clear volcanic signals. You may ask, why is this all going up here? Depressingly, this is called modern anthropogenic pollution. And the sad thing is, of course, it's getting worse, and uh, we're, we're sort of living in this bit over here somewhere. This is what a speleothem looks like, naturally. This is what it looks like after it's been cut and polished. Is this a destructive science? Yes, I'm afraid they're not there growing anymore after they've been cut in sections. So this is one of those things where you have to use the resource carefully because you can't put it back after you've gone and destroyed it to analyze it. And then people take oxygen isotope and other records from these. And in cases recently where it's done to the highest sort of level, and particularly some of the examples have been done in China in the last couple of years, have been published, resolutions are possible at the annual scale, or certainly plus or minus about one or two years, and back over thousands of years. And Dominic Fleitman here is one of the sort of leading figures working out of Switzerland. And a record that he has already put a little tantalizing semi-publication together, coming from Turkey, shows an extraordinary spike in sulfur and a change in, in the oxygen isotope, which would suggest that vegetation is being stressed just around the same time. Lo and behold, around 1600 BC, give or take a year or two. So more or less at the same time, given their dating is not on this core that precise. It could easily move by 10 or 20 years, according to their preliminary work. This will become more high resolution. So one might be observing here major effects on vegetation, and one may be observing a major sulfur input into the local landscape. It's very difficult to explain sulfur appearing in large amounts in a cave other than from a volcanic eruption. And it's probably difficult to explain this change in the oxygen isotope record sharply, except for such a fairly dramatic one-off event. And in the gray going up here, this equals the dating that we'll come to in a little while of an olive tree sample found buried on the Santorini, published two years ago, in which 
the dating is placed here, and it seems to match remarkably closely with this appearance in the cave record. Key things to remember about speleothems, they're growing inside caves. How does that record get there? It means stuff percolates from the ground surface down into this thing. So it takes time. So there's a buffering mechanism between something happening now and it being picked up in the speleothem. So you expect it to be later, and you expect it to be a bit later, and a lot of effort then goes into modelling for each particular environment how long that cycle is. You also get this tephra impact that I mentioned. So here we are at the site of Triandron Roads, and Tula Marquetu here is indicating with her hands the Minoan tephra that spread across the site, 10 to 20 centimetres worth. So this is another possible avenue could be followed more, trying to understand how the tephra worked, how much fell. By doing studies on the seabed, it's possible to map the distribution of the tephra away from the volcano. And a major campaign by Woods, based out of Woods Hole has happened in the last couple of years, which you produce profiles like this. And based on this, the estimate now is at least 60 cubic kilometers of material, dense rock equivalent, came out of Santorini. This is literally almost twice the estimate that was published around about 1990. So this makes it much bigger. It means that the scale of the damage from Tephra Fall and the scale of the atmospheric impact will have been rather larger than people previously thought. So this means a diagram like this needs to be upscaled by a sort of factor of 50%. That doesn't mean every number increases by 50% because it's a sort of curve thing, so you're suddenly going to have four times if you do that. But the numbers have to be scaled up. Another student of mine, David Sewell, when Reading, considered that maybe one can actually get some more information out of the tephra by using modern global circulation models and trying to see where tephra goes at different times of the year, treating the volcano as a point source. So you model different times of the year, you put the stuff into the atmosphere, and you see where it goes. If you then consider that against the known distribution that we have, so against a diagram like this where we have a known distribution of where the tephra is, you ought to be able to figure out when the volcano happened. And depending on when it happened, this may or may not have a lot more impact on the society. So for example, if it happens at a time that you've just planted your crops, it really probably has very little impact on most crops because it just washes away in the spring rains. They grow, and if anything, it's going to act as a fertilizer, and you're going to have a better year. Whereas if it falls at about the time you're going to be harvesting your crops, or just after you've harvested them, and all of your resources are sitting in a little silo, and then they go and get covered by volcanic ash, this is not so good. Nobody wants to eat glass with their cereals. And generally speaking, this is going to poison wells and cause problems, particularly if it was the summer where you need these sort of stored resources and stored water. Based on his analysis, the only time that you can model something that gets anywhere close to the observed distribution is with a summer volcanic eruption. So this would imply potentially it had a major impact scenario. You would be talking about the period either during or just after the harvest and the time when you would have had the maximum stress on resources in the island because you were in a relatively arid zone. So summer is the period that you have stress on your water and your food resources. But a great deal clearly depends on when this eruption happened because what impact it has depends on when it occurred in terms of what stage within the societies. Now, how do you figure out time in the Bronze Age? The traditional model <coughs> employed since the late 19th century was you divided up the civilization according to periods based on the stratigraphy and the ceramic style and the architectural phasing that you could observe, and you gave them names. As you can see, late whatever down the left-hand side. 
and you then went and found an historic civilization, particularly Egypt, and you found when could you find objects that either came from or went to that historic civilization. You found the context therein, so in principle, if you could find a painting that showed a pharaoh, let's say Amenhotep I, holding an object said made on Crete, you would say that's perfect, Amenhotep equals that style of object equals this date. Now, it never quite works that way. Rather, you find a grave of a person who's thought to date perhaps within the reign of Amenhotep I, but maybe the one before. It could be the one after. We're not quite sure. A lot depends on how or not you do this. But it's roughly then. Therefore, we'll say it sort of fits there. And the Aegean object is thought to be of a particular style. But, of course, expert A does say it might be late in the period, and expert B says it might be early, and expert C says he's not quite sure. So you get a sort of fuzziness in both directions. But in principle, you're comparing across. In the Middle Kingdom up the top where the red arrow is, Flinders Petrie being plonked up there, we have a whole group of middle Minoan objects were found in Egypt, and no one's really ever seriously doubted that middle Minoan II goes with this period, 12th to 13th dynasties. And down the bottom, we have this period where we have a whole bunch of later Laddic 3A2 early objects found at Amarna, go with Akhenaten, and again, thousands of them found Everything seems to work nicely. And then we have other times, like around about late Minoan 1 here, which oddly enough is when the volcanic eruption of Thera occurs, where we have no objects from Crete found in Egypt or vice versa in a very secure way. And there's been a bit of debate as to what happens at this point. So what about these destructions? Well, these destructions happened at a time that is called late Minoan 1b. And supposedly they end happen at the end of the phase. So it's the end of the phase equal these destructions, although it's been argued that maybe they occur over several phases and slightly different times. And at least since about Wolf-Dietrich Nehemiah's work um, on palestyle ceramics at Knossos and other things that occurred in the 80s, people have started to try and complexify it a little bit rather than seeing it as one wave of biblical destruction the way Dennis Page described it. However, the overwhelming problem that occurred for the simple model is the fact that all of the ceramics found buried under the pumice on Thera are late Minoan 1A in style. Now, you may say, what's late Minoan 1A and 1B between friends? Well, it's only a letter, I realize, and they're adjacent ones, so they're close to each other. But the key point is one period is meant to be entirely before the other period. So we have late, late Minoan 1A on screen, and we have late, late Minoan 1B previously. And there's meant to be a whole ceramic period in between. So, of course, the big question is, how long is that in-between? Now, in the traditional model, the answer was, not that long. Mervyn Popham of this university famously described late Minoan 1b as being at most a generation. And he allocated 25 years, because that's apparently what a generation equals when you look at vase paintings and you can see different styles. Why? No one knows. It could be five years, it could be 50, you could argue, but a short chronology in which case you only had to sort of fiddle the dates a little bit or think that maybe you could move that volcano down a few years even, and you could almost bring them together. And people like Luce, writing even into the later 1970s, tried to do this article in the American Journal of Archaeology somehow to suggest that you get the volcano down to about 1475 and you lift the dates of the destructions a couple. There you go. Because it's obvious, really, isn't it? If you have a biblical-scale, once-in-10,000-years volcanic eruption just up the road, and you've got a whole lot of destructions, surely it's obvious they must go together. But you have this ceramic problem. And in fact, Mervyn Popham so nicely wrote in a review some years ago, 
back in the 70s, that it was unfortunate, but a beautiful hypothesis seemed to be negated by the facts here, which that you had different periods. Then Dreesen McDonald came along and said, yes, okay, we accept this diagram, but because it's really only 25 years or so between the volcano and these destructions, and maybe these destructions occurred over some years, so maybe it's only really a decade or two between the first ones and the volcano, can't we say it caused them? It will have undermined the religious order on the society because they were all used to one political and religious order. Whopping big volcano comes along, devastation, tsunamis, earthquakes. Who's going to believe that the priest king controls the gods anymore when this type of thing happens? Social unrest. You're going to have had destruction of trading routes, crops, agricultural resources. So therefore, any would-be underclass or peasants definitely picked at this point to be revolting. Routes coming out of southeast Turkey, where maybe metals are coming from, would have been disrupted. So you can imagine all sorts of systems being affected, potentially collapsing. So maybe this leads to the undermining of the econ economic and ideological and ideational model that applied on Crete, and the whole thing could fall apart. If this chronology is correct, it seems perfectly plausible if you can keep it within a sort of generation or less timescale. Even then, one has to question the normal naivety of archaeologists, because if you think about the modern world in the last century, and you think about what has happened in even what Hobsbawm calls you know, the, the short 20th century, but within short periods of time, total change can happen within a couple of decades. Here, you're expecting it more or less to be just collapse over 25 years. Well, this seems unlikely to me, but it's possible when it's a short chronology. But if we look back at our evidence that people have started to mention, like the tree ring stuff that we had, and people have also looked at ice cores, trying to wonder if they could figure out the dates of the volcano here. And they have consistently suggested dates for the volcano that might be a little bit earlier and making it a little bit longer. And particularly, most recently, three different volcanic signals have been detected in three different ice cores, which all appear to be contemporary, marked by the red arrow. And paper published 2008 by Vincent and dozens of colleagues argued quite forcefully that this could well be the Theron eruption, despite various criticism. And in particular, it had to be an eruption that came from a low southern latitude within the northern hemisphere or equatorial, so somewhere like Thera. But these dates that people are suggesting, whether it be from the tree rings and the ice cores, they're at least 100 years earlier than they should have been according to that traditional chronology. So radiocarbon comes into play here. And a lot of this work has been done in Oxford, and particularly by amongst others, Christopher, who's in the audience here. So a lot of labs have radiocarbon dated seed remains, so short-lived samples found buried by the volcanic eruption, which should therefore more or less date the volcanic eruption, give or take a very few years. Traditional cereals aren't stored for more than a half dozen, eight at the most years. This is the model within sort of a Mediterranean context. They go off, so you've got to be very close. And a whole series of dates have been done, which are the, the averages of the little red things. <laughs> different laboratories at different times from the 1970s through to the 80-2000s. And broadly speaking, they got the same answer time after time. You get a likely date here, somewhere in the later part of the 17th century, and a just sort of possible date, but not so likely, because you're more or less missing what's called the radiocarbon calibration curve. This is how you get your date if you're in the middle of the 16th century. But there is this ambiguity. So in a more recent project, we took a whole bunch of sites around the Aegean region and said, well, let's not just date Thera. Why don't we try and date some archaeological sites and objects before the Theron eruption and after the Theron eruption 
and the Syrian eruption as well. And the sequence together is going to give us a much more precise and robust fitting. So, for example, before the eruption, we could find an oak, piece of oak from a stool. It's been described as a throne by the excavator, but it's probably a tripod stool coming from Miletus, which was found with wany edge. So that means the last ring before bark, it's oak, found covered by Theron ash. So we, one thing we can say with utter confidence is the chair was there before the volcano, and it therefore must set the last growth ring of that stool must at least set a terminus postquem, a point after which for the eruption. It can't be earlier than the chair. It could, of course, be 500 years after the chair. The chair, of course, would have rotted and wouldn't be there and stuff. But the point is it sets a date after which for the chair, from the chair. So we can take that thing apart. We can do what's called wiggle matching, which means we take 10-year slices across that piece of wood. We radiocarbon date each 10-year slice in sequence, and we ask can that fit against the known pattern of radiocarbon variation in the atmosphere at that time? And we discover that, yes, the little magenta dots from the, the chair fit perfectly around the radiocarbon calibration curve, even finding this feature. So that gives us a very precise date for the outside of the chair, which is here, in the middle of the 17th century BC. And we can do the reverse. We can look at sites that come after the volcano, from late Minoan 1b and late Minoan 2, and we can date those to the best of our ability and say, well, clearly the volcano must be before that point. So we have a series of sites that we can do that from. And we can put these all together in one of these Bayesian analytical models in which we say all of these things are before the eruption, the eruption itself, and a date that's coming as a terminus antiquem from the late Minoan 1b material, and see, first of all, does it work coherently against the known record of atmospheric variations of radiocarbon? So in a sense, it's a fingerprint test. Does the fingerprint we get from these archaeological put-togethers match roughly against the one that we know must apply? If the answer is no, well, that implies there's something wrong with the archaeology, that people haven't got the right context, they've got the stratigraphic order wrong or something like that, or the lab's in error. If it does match, we should then be able to get a more precise and robust date as a result of doing this. And the date that we got, which is a little black thing, gives us an age range in the mid and especially later 17th century BC. About the same date as the tree ring frost damage, about the same date as the Irish oaks narrow growth, about the same age as the ice core evidence. Doesn't really matter if they are or they aren't, but they're all in the 17th century is the key point. Our dates are up here, and if it was the a traditional date, much later, it would be down here. And there's quite a lot of free space in between the two. So it's not a case of just missing. There's quite a big difference between these two positions. <coughs> Coincidentally, Walter Friedrich, Denmark, working on the island of Santorini, found an olive branch buried in the pumice on Santorini. And this has been analyzed and dated. And again, doing this wiggle matching technique, he fitted the radiocarbon dates from his olive branch and gets a date in the last couple of decades of the 17th century for the last growth ring of this olive tree, which he argues is killed by the volcanic eruption. So all of these different approaches, a couple of radiocarbon, but different labs, different groups, other potential proxy sources, maybe if you believe the work with the hafnium linked to a volcano, are all indicating the 17th century BC, which is sort of 100-odd years earlier than it should be. So the result is we have a chronology that looks more like the dates over on this side versus the one over on this side, which is the traditional chronology. 
and you'll spot that this period's now become apparently quite long, which means there's now a century or more between the volcano and these destructions, which starts to defeat any real way of saying, well, how on earth could this volcano have created these destructions? We have a much more interesting history as a result, I'd like to suggest, sort of our closing section. We have a world that goes with the volcano, late Minoan 1A, which is the time of the volcanic eruption just before, right across the East Mediterranean where we can trace common features. So we have frescoes found at Akrotiri. Some of the frescoes found there even show a Neolithic scene, which looks very much like the East Mediterranean. And at the time, 17th century, this is the high point of the Hyksos or Canaanite regime that ruled in the Nile Delta and part of this area here into modern-day Israel and the Levant. We have exports, like the Telehudier vessels from that part of the world, found as far away as Thera, lots on Cyprus. We have a king of the Hyksos king that sends vessels as a gift of some sort, we presume, to Knossos. This is Cayenne. We have a number of exchanges marked by the Laros, and particularly common finds of frescoes of the same style in several parts of the world, including into Israel, all tying together to create one world which comes out of the Canaanite, driven by the Canaanites. This area in here, the Hyksos part, Tel El Dabar is its center, places like Tel El Ajul. This is a West Semitic group which are not exactly being ignored, but it's fair to say until Van Cedars read a book on the Hyksos, they were all but ignored. And even since then, they're not really part of the mainstream discussion. Egypt's the big superpower we talk about, and then Babylonia and the Hittites. But this little group, a mercantile world, arguably when they set up their coastal sites in the last part of the Middle Bronze Age, in the very beginning of the Late Bronze Age, drive the first real Mediterranean, East Mediterranean maritime economy that we know about. Potentially, they're a very important dark age of commas that needs to be rediscovered. And excitingly, one could argue that it explains a number of aspects of Aegean civilization afterwards, why we have so many aspects that could be described as broadly pre-Phoenician, but coming from the Phoenician part of the world, in Greek culture in later times. Then we have a bit of an accident. This volcanic eruption occurs, and a site which arguably was the major international entrepot and port of the southern Aegean, and I've drawn the map slightly to make it look completely central, but arguably it is the central site in the region, it gets devastated. We know from the paintings and from the objects found there, we have imports from Egypt, Hittite world, Crete, mainland. This was the major port, and that caldera, apart from it was having a volcanic eruption, was the perfect prehistoric harbor and trading place. That gets destroyed. So that would have been a fairly big blow to that world that we were just looking at, certainly at this Aegean end. Maybe it was the end of that particular world that we saw. We now have our redating that we've done, and we then have this large period of time here, late Minoan 1b, which perhaps becomes, therefore, much more interesting. Now, when you redate things in the Aegean, as has been pointed out vigorously, angrily, determinedly, by many of the critics of this type of redating, you just can't do this because that really means that you're changing the relations between the Aegean periods and those in places like Egypt. To which one says, of course, that's the whole point of doing this type of thing. It's interesting. So if you look at this chronology with the longer thing, on the traditional model, these pharaohs roughly belong against these things. Sorry, I'm going to go around. I'm looking at my little screen the wrong way. So we have these people over here, 
and we've stretched this chronology out quite a little bit. So instead of, for example, saying that the volcanic eruption occurs during the course of the 18th dynasty, so 18th dynasty begins around 1540 BC and happily trundles on and supposedly 40 years later there's a whopping big eruption and nothing much happens and then you have these late Minoan 1B destructions, time of Tuthmoses, it becomes, in some senses, rather more interesting because we have the whole of this late Minoan 1A period and this major trading world that we can see linked against the pre-18th dynasty Canaanite bunch. And then we have a late Minoan 1B period that stretches from somewhere in the 16th century BC, certainly encompasses all of the 18th dynasty, and runs through to the time of Tuthmosis III, who was the major conquering pharaoh that took the Egyptians from being major power to becoming an empire in most of Western Asia. So potentially the correlations that we have then are more interesting and more relevant. And we can start to see, try it over here, this figure here becomes a more important one. Now, if this was just based on a couple of radiocarbon dates, nobody in the Aegean field would think it was even worth bothering with. I'm sure there's one person out there who would loyally say, well, that's actually a good idea. But generally speaking, it's fair to say it wouldn't get any airplay or attention. But the extraordinary thing is, completely independently, a well-known ceramic sherd nerd, inverted commas, an expert on ceramics called Jeremy B. Rutter, Dartmouth College in the US, who's worked in the mainland and has worked at a site called Comos on screen in southern Crete for a couple of decades now, studying the ceramics. He has recently proposed that the late Minoan 1B period should be divided into three definitely and probably four discrete phases. And suddenly he's talking about the period being quite long, and not being the 25 years that Popham was talking about. And in fact, the argument is that the phase Mervyn Popham was talking about was really just basically this little bit here, and didn't include any of this earlier phase. So suddenly we have this very long period based on the ceramic evidence, such that we could say, if we go along to archaeological sites, that we could divide them up, and we could say, this period is older than this period, older than this period, older than this period. And conveniently, we have some radiocarbon evidence that comes from these periods. We have some from a site called Hanya, which probably belongs in here. We have some from a place called Mirtos Pirgos that definitely is attributed to this phase, according to Rutter, not me. And we have some material from Moklos, northeast Crete, which, again, is attributed by Rutter specifically to this phase. So we have an archaeological sequence in which we're told we have radiocarbon dates in a sequence, which means we can then use that information, that archaeological information, and take that to the radiocarbon thing and say, well, does it work? Does it work in order? So we can create a model like this, one in which we have all the Hanyar dates just together, and then this order, or we can divide them up into, this is Jerry's possibly early and possibly next phase. So if you do the division, you get this. Both of them get roughly the same information in which we can come up with these sorts of dates for the subphases of late Minoan 1b from the radiocarbon information that we already have. And the extraordinary thing is, well, first of all, it works. Well, that's not actually a given. I mean, very often, if you just stick a bunch of radiocarbon dates in and say, well, do you make an order? The point is, they don't. So the fact that they work rather implies that the archaeology may well be correct because it's given you an order that's consistent with the information that you have independently from the radiocarbon. And extraordinarily enough, the dates that it provides sort of match almost perfectly with what you might have expected if you were having a long phase. A long phase that roughly goes from the period in the 16th century, from the end of the Hyksos world, late Hyksos world, 
through to the time of Tuthmosis III and the creation of this new empire. So we have to perhaps rethink the role, I think, of Santorini and rethink the story of Aegean prehistory dramatically, in which we have a very large volcanic eruption that destroys a late Minoan 1A world, which leads to a completely new, very long late Minoan 1B period, by the end of which Knossos has emerged as the sole supersite on the island of Crete. Perhaps Dreesta McDonald's study could argue somewhat stimulated by the aspects of the destruction it caused, but maybe not. And by the end of that period, in the beginning of late Minoan II, you have a single supersite in the southern Aegean, which now appears to be in close contact with the major ruler of the Near East, Tuthmosis III, and so in touch that, in fact, you have wall paintings dated to the reign of Tuthmosis III, not by me, but by the archaeologists, from late Minoan II times, these are the dates of Sinclair Hood especially, against Tuthmosis III dates, particularly later in Tuthmosis's reign, Going together, you have royal correspondence, particularly things like the half rosettes and things here, which you also find in the throne room at Knossos. This is argued by a number of scholars to be specifically royal imagery. So you have a king now, perhaps, at Knossos, a single claimed ruler, not the whole island, but at least a significant part of the island, corresponding with part of a world that associates with the king or great ruler of the Near East. So we sort of perhaps have these new conclusions to come out from this type of study, in which we have... This very major volcanic eruption, which happens late in the late Minoan one period, so you should be looking for what world that ends rather than trying to put it onto the next period. We have this late Minoan one B period, which perhaps becomes a much more significant period of change, and we have by the end of that period in late Minoan two a completely different monopalatial world order in which this Cretan world has now become a real part of the royal Near East. Now, of course, Minoan ceramics have been traded since the earlier part of the second millennium with the Eastern Mediterranean, but there's no real indication, there's one report of a trader perhaps from Crete, from the Near East, but there's no indication that this is as, as equals. Suddenly, arguably, maybe in this middle part of the second millennium, even if we don't yet have any letters saying, you know, great king, how are your wives, women, chariots, etc., comma, and how is it at Knossos, but in principle, they've entered the world of being part of the powers of the Near East. And in the earlier period, we perhaps can rethink late Minoan 1A in very interesting ways. Even from the art history, we can see some interesting things. We have the Minoanizing frescoes from Akrotiri with the Neolotic scene, including the griffin, yes, but it's more the fact it's the Neolotic scene and the cat chasing the little duck, which is just like the sword that we have in the Near Eastern technology, the Niello-type ware that we have from the Mycenae shaft graves. So why are we linking with this Neolotic marsh type of scene if this is not trying to link with the great world of the Hyksos in the Nile Delta. And we have paintings of women, like on Thera here, with earrings that have granulation, jewellery, of a sort that you really can only link with sites like Tel Ajul, where in the late Middle Bronze Age, this technology is invented. Often they are not buried or they're in graves, they're then in use to the beginning of the late Bronze Age, but this is a specific MB3 phase that occurs in the Near East. So this is a world that links together the Aegean and the Semitic Canaanite world at a time that perhaps explains stories like Cadmos coming to Thebes and a number of aspects of our classical civilization, which then ends, in a sense, because of the volcano. So it does destroy something. If you believe you can't have an enormous volcano without it doing something. So it ends this world. And then we have a new world that forms after that, 
arguably perhaps because of the volcano, but there's a new world that equals late Minoan 1b and especially late Minoan 2 Knossos, which we should now think of differently. It's got nothing to do so much with the destructions. It's about change and becoming a new single-centre major power that creates the real first state level in the sense of recognised by other people, com combinations and symbolism and exchanges, as one of the great powers of the East Mediterranean world. Okay, thank you.